guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Lynn Novick here with us. Lynn Novick is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning documentary filmmaker. For nearly 30 years, she has been producing and directing films about American history and culture, among them some of the most acclaimed and top-rated documentaries to have ever aired on PBS. Her works include Prohibition, Baseball, Jazz, Frank Lloyd Wright, and The War, a seven-part, 15-hour exploration of ordinary Americans' experiences in World War II. Novick's newest project, The Vietnam War, was co-directed by longtime partner Ken Burns and first aired on PBS in September of 2017. Thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. My pleasure. One of the, the questions we'd like to begin our interviews with is asking about the concept of inflection points or, or pivots in your life, be it your personal or professional, uh, where you realized that a change needed to be made that really led you to where you are right now. Uh, so if you could share a couple of those points with us, that would be wonderful. When I was a freshman in college, I expected to be, become a doctor. And so I signed up for freshman organic chemistry mm. because I had already taken AP chemistry in high school. So I remember going to the class and dutifully kind of taking out my notebook. And I think I maybe even bought the textbook. I'm not sure. And trying to imagine myself on a path towards being a doctor and feeling a little twinge of, I'm not sure this is right for me, but everything I had done up until that point was, I thought, pointing me in that direction. And then I went to a meeting of pre-med sort of counseling, what to do, how to plan your college career so you can become a doctor. And pretty much everything they said I had to do, I thought, I'm not sure I want to do that. And so I withdrew from freshman organic chemistry, and I was really left with, okay, what am I going to do now? My whole path I thought I was on was not the path I wanted to be on. And I'm not really sure, looking back, that I understood at that moment that was a real fork in the road. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know where I would be heading. I just knew I wasn't going there. And when I look back, I think that was an extremely important moment. Absolutely. And going off that, because obviously you've, you've pivoted so so greatly from from that that path. Uh, you, you said in an interview in the Washington Post, you took a job at the Smithsonian Institution's National uh, Museum of American History. And can you kind of talk about what led you there and, and how that, because obviously doctor and, you know, American <laughs> history are, are very disparate and, and we don't know too many people. we got the, both <laughs> of those going fair. on. So right. talk about that a little bit. Well, I ended up majoring in American studies, which was sort of an inter interdisciplinary look at lots of different aspects of American culture, history, politics, art, literature, et cetera. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. And I graduated with a liberal arts degree from a good college, but no real job skills. And I ended up eventually getting a job as a researcher at the American History Museum in Washington. And that was really great for me because I understood sort of what the work of public history could be, which I was sort of interested in, but not sure. And I ended up realizing that I didn't want to become uh, an academic and get a PhD and follow a, an academic path. Um, I wanted to do something more popular. And I wanted to find a way to tell the stories I was interested in that would reach a lot of people. And while I was working in the museum and thinking about whether I'd want to do that through representation of the past through artifacts, I realized that I wanted to work in film. That element of storytelling that you, you talked about in terms of gaining popularity, uh, you, you see it incredibly well done in, in all of the work that you've contributed to and produced. And I wanted to ask, how has your approach to storytelling evolved? And, and what really has led to the, the evolution of that in terms of if, if any pivotal points within your career at that? Every subject seems to have its own exigencies and its own demands. And so from the beginning, I think I've tried to keep an open mind. And over time, I feel I have gravitated more towards uh, contemporary stories with living witnesses. 
um, I've worked a lot on material that goes way back before photography even. Mm -hmm. And certainly before there were people around to tell you about um, things that happened in the 19th century or early 20th century. But when I have a chance to speak to a person who lived through whatever experience it is, um, when we were working on our film about prohibition, I talked to a woman who was a flapper in the 20s and a man whose father was a bootlegger. And, you know, people who, uh, another guy whose father was a revenuer who went and arrested bootleggers. So people who were in their 90s who remembered what happened in the 20s. That's incredible. And uh, yeah, I mean, you just, you touch history in a way that's so deep. <laughs> And their memories might be a little faulty and, mm -hmm. you know, they have a hard time sometimes finding the right word. But if you're patient and you're present, you can really have something magic happen. So I, I think over time I've, I've found that that is the most powerful kinds of stories I'm interested in. Um, but when you don't have that, it doesn't mean the past is inaccessible to you. Right. Then you have to think about creative ways to make it come alive. Absolutely. And going off that, um, there's, there's a quote I really like uh, from the acclaimed biographer, Ron Chernow. And he often says, never underestimate the laziness of your predecessors. <laughs> and that's something that's resonated with me. And, and I'm wondering, to what extent does that play into your idea of research and, and your work and stories, especially, you know, Vietnam, World War II? These are subjects that are already so extensively documented and they're, they're already, you know, PBS documentaries about them. Mm. How do you, how, does that inspire your approach at all? It takes chutzpah to say, oh, another great filmmaker already made right. a film about, let's say, uh, LBJ, which is something we're thinking about doing. Or we're now talking about, we're working on a film about Ernest Hemingway. Right, and there have right. been other films made about him. Certainly, many subjects we've tackled, World War II, have been done before. Vietnam has been done a lot. Mm -hmm. And you just have to kind of swallow hard and hope that you'll bring something new. But even if you weren't some great genius filmmaker, which I don't claim to be, where you are right now in the world, who you how you operate, who you know, how you think, what's available to you is different than whatever someone might have done 20 years ago. So I think I love a quote from Anais Nin, which is, um, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. So whoever you are, you're, that, you bring that. And in the case of the Vietnam series that Ken and I just finished, you know, it has been done a lot, but we had the chance to get perspectives from Vietnam, and no one had really ever done that in the way that we did. We had access to presidential audio tapes. They've been available for the last 20 years or so, but they're, it's very difficult to work with that material. And so we had sort of new tools with which to tell the story that had been told before. And someone will come along 25 years from now, and our world will look different, mm. and people will have different perspectives, and the meaning of it will be something altogether unexpected. So it, uh, there's, it's, I think important stories can be told in every generation. Absolutely. And to reference an interview you had given, you, you said, I'm sure, quite facetiously, uh, that you're, you think your job is to make grown men cry. Oh, no, that wasn't facetious. No, oh, maybe not. Okay, very, very well could be true. Uh, and I think a very unique part to, to your own work is the incredible interviews and the incredible personal narratives you're able to get out of each um, story you decide to document. And so my question to you is, what what is the level of responsibility and accountability you go in to, to each interview thinking about? And, and the questions that you make sure that your, your interviewee is, is comfortable knowing that they are going to be represented in the most authentic way. That's a beautiful question. <laughs> Thank you for asking it, seriously, because that's at the heart of what we try to do. Um, if we're going to ask people to sort of bear their soul to us, literally, we have to do that with a lot of reverence and respect. But sometimes these stories are hard. Yeah. Sometimes people don't really want to tell them and they are worried about how they're going to look. 
I'm working on a film right now, which will come out next year, about people who are incarcerated who are going to college. Mm-hmm. And they're studying some of the same things you guys are studying, but they're behind bars. Right. They're extremely vulnerable to everything. They don't have any control over their lives. They have been extraordinarily generous with us, uh, Sarah Botstein and I are producing the film together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I... I don't have words to explain the responsibility that I feel that we all feel working on this film because um, one false move can really jeopardize the film, the program we're trying to show, the lives of the people um, who are letting us film them, their families, their victims' families. I mean, it's extremely complicated. So we just, um, we worry a lot and we try to be respectful and not to judge too much so that when you speak to people, you're present and you're listening and you let them be who they are. Mm-hmm. And then you just, you take this it's sort of like someone's given you this incredibly precious gift and you hold it in your hands Absolutely. from the moment of the interview till the film is done. Right. And you just treasure it and you hold on to it and you try to treat it right. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If after the film comes out, the call I don't want to get is, I'm sorry I participated in that film. I don't like how right. you told my story. Right. Right. And thank God that has never happened. That's, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, so so you mentioned uh, some of the projects you're working on, obviously. Uh, one on Incarceration coming out in 2018, another one on Ernest Hemingway. I'm particularly fascinated uh, by by an LBJ story. I think that could be great, obviously. Uh, Robert Caro is still working on his final volume. And we're, all, we're all anticipating <laughs> that. Um, but obviously, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin got her start with that, and there's some great questions with there. But what kind of draws you into these new creative projects? And obviously, mm. um, on ones you work with, with, uh, with Ken Burns, obviously that's kind of a mutual decision or something. Right. Maybe one of you will come to come together with an idea? How does that, can you kind of let our listeners how that, how does yeah, that Yeah, it's really important because when we commit to a project, it's going to be a long time. Yeah. We have to raise money. We're going to be involved in something for a while. We want to pick carefully, but sometimes it's very um, intuitive and, and uh, sort of impulsive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it requires a lot of debate and deliberation. So I remember vividly, we were finishing our film on the history of baseball in 1994. And in that film, I had interviewed a professor named Gerald Early And he had said in the beginning of the film, he's an African-American man and he loves baseball. And he said that he loved baseball because it was the greatest thing America had, one of the greatest things America had ever created, just like the Constitution and jazz. It's what we would be remembered for 2,000 years from now when the Martians came here to study America. (laughs) And so we put that in the beginning of the baseball film. It was really about baseball. And we use a lot of jazz music in the background of the 20s, 30s, 40s of the film, music Mm. I had never really heard. And by the time we finished making that film, Ken and I just looked at each other and said, okay, if Gerald is right, we got to do jazz. (laughs) It was like, of course. There was a (laughs) no-brainer. It was just so obvious. So that was not a long, deliberative process. Um, But sometimes it takes a long time. We had a lot of back and forth about Vietnam, whether to tackle it because it had been done. What could we say that was new? Um, and my argument was, which everyone basically agreed, but we had to have the argument among ourselves and why are we going to do this? Why should we devote our time and resources? And, you know, there's only so many films you can make. Um, I felt that the Vietnam war was this extremely toxic sort of unprocessed trauma for our country Mm -hmm. and that it was acting, we were acting out as a result of it in ways we didn't fully understand because we never really came to grips with what happened. We never really faced the truth about the war, the truths. And that if we didn't do that, we were just going to be, you know, post-traumatic forever. Right. And if we could find a way to tell the story and let people's voices be heard, maybe we could have a different kind of conversation. And so it felt like, okay, it's been done, but 
we need it. We actually need right. to know this story right now. So each, I know in Hemingway, I was at Key West in his house 20 years ago. And I remember thinking, wow, this is an epic American story. Oh, absolutely. Just, right. you know, his life embodies yeah. the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Well, until 1960, <laughs> 61 when he killed himself. But, you know, there's a lot there and there's a lot beneath the surface. Hemingway said that a good writer um, just shows the tip of the iceberg and basically seven eighths of what you know you don't show. And you mm -hmm. just show what's at the top above the, the water. And I felt like most of what we know about Hemingway is just the little tip of the iceberg. We don't actually know much about who he really was. Right. So it took us 20 years to get around to making right. the film. <laughs> so <laughs> once, each story once you got is something different. in the pipeline, it takes, I know, it, with Fiona, yeah. especially, you started in 2006. So, I mean, these are really. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is fundraising. Right. Right. And just kind of convincing ourselves, doing enough research. The thing that I think maybe differentiates us somewhat is that we tend to pick subjects we don't know that much about. Interesting. So we know enough to know it's interesting. Like when I said about jazz, neither Ken or I knew that much about jazz. We knew it was great music, but our writer, Jeff Ward, is a jazz aficionado, and he knew a great deal about jazz, so he was very, very excited to jump in. But for the most part, we pick subjects we really are not that knowledgeable about, and so we have to spend a fair amount of time just getting up to speed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to that end, a lot of your work represents really coming-of-age stories for America and for nations. Wow. I, I, Globally. Um, and I think I, I had you heard that phrase used in, in one of the interviews you conducted. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that in mind and knowing you know, the work and projects you do have down uh, the pipeline, is there a story you've wanted to tell that really does represent that coming of age, uh, be it for you know, this nation or, or yeah. globally? That's a great question, too. I, um, I do think the Vietnam story was about America getting out of adolescence and becoming an adult nation. Right. Mm -hmm. There was this sort of naive, you know, optimism about who we are and what we can do. There was this faith in our specialness. There was this belief that our leaders were better than normal people, all of that. So there was a sense of kind of growing up in a tragic way through Vietnam. Uh, the story that I'm most interested in pursuing over the long run, which I think is kind of in a way a parallel I'm not sure I can make this exactly line up, but we're talking about doing a history of crime and punishment in America. We would go back to before the pilgrim, I mean, the pilgrims coming here, people coming here enslaved. Uh, what are our notions of what is a crime? What is the proper punishment? What is the role of the um, criminal justice system uh, and how it has evolved? So that would be, we're in a very bad place right now and we have been for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to try to figure out how we got here so we can get out of it. Absolutely. So, so you, you mentioned all these all these different projects, and, and clearly there's so many great great ones to pursue. One one recent interview I heard, I believe with uh, Terry Gross, uh, the the Iraq War came up, and and obviously this you know it might be too facile a comparison to say you know Iraq Vietnam things like that. But one thing you did mention uh, there was was that our leaders necess haven't necessarily learned the lessons of Vietnam. So I was kind of intrigued. What do you take away? And obviously for those who haven't seen the film or listeners, um, what do you take as the lessons of Vietnam? Mm -hmm. And then what do you think those lessons would have been in Iraq or even even for for something more prescriptive today? Yeah, well, um, there are several lessons I think we didn't learn or we haven't held on to. Some lessons we kind of learned for a little while and you know, for the 15 years or so after the Vietnam War, we vowed not to get involved in an uh, asymmetrical war again in a foreign country, and we really didn't. And so um, we sort of tried to fight the wars we were good at fighting, and the Gulf War certainly is the first Gulf War mm -hmm. is the example of that, sort of shock and awe, overwhelming power. We fought a conventional war against a conventional army that gave up after an aerial bombardment campaign, and it kind of went right according to plan. Um, 
So that was one lesson that we did learn for a while, but we seem to have forgotten it when we went back to Iraq and into Afghanistan. And um, the sense of wishful thinking that things will turn out the way we want them to because we want them to. The, thing, the idea that the rules that normally apply don't apply to us, that we're special and that we can sort of just do things because we want to. And probably most important is to know uh, your enemy. Who are you fighting? What are they fighting for? I don't think we really grasp any of those things too well in Iraq, certainly in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, when you look back at the Vietnam War, there's one of the big controversial issues is why did we lose? Mm -hmm. And you hear a lot uh, people saying, well, the media turned the country against the war and the media lost the war. And that is absolutely not true. It's, it's, it's not, that is not factually accurate. The media basically supported the war and wrote stories and provided television coverage that was basically what the, the military narrative was. But the American public got tired of a war of attrition where there was just a constant stream of casualties and no progress. And after a while, the question of what we're fighting for and is it worth it became unanswerable. And the sort of the water ran out of the bathtub at that point, mm -hmm. and there's just no getting it back. And that's a lesson that our military and our politicians have learned because now we don't have a draft. So if you don't have a draft, then the American people aren't really that involved in what's going on. So you have a tiny percentage of people involved in fighting wars, and the rest of us go about our lives. So that's a lesson I think is unfortunate because it allows our leaders to perpetuate wars or perpetrate wars without any accountability. And um, I, I hope that our film helps to raise the question of national service, a draft, you know, leadership, mm -hmm. um, so that when our leaders send us to war, we know our enemy, we know the limits of our power, we know um, we involve the whole country, so everybody mm -hmm. has skin in the game. Right. Wow. You know, Social that's responsibility. What those, that's what needs to happen if we're going to go to war. Absolutely. My opinion. That's, that's fascinating. So unfortunately, uh, we only have time for one more question, and it's a question uh, we love to ask all our guests. And it's, uh, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? That's a very, very big question. <laughs> and I'm sure it evolves at every age that you're in. I, I think it's dangerous to look for outward or external affirmation as a sign of success. I think it has to come from inside. And for me as a woman, as a working mom, and as a storyteller and professional, success has been trying to find a balance between all the things that are important to me. So um, being able to raise my kids and um, be there for them and also have a really fulfilling career that I hope makes a difference in the world. If I could do that, that's success. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today. Um, and, and unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Uh, and to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.